to the Archie Chetcher podcast. I know it's been a little bit, but we're we're back and up and running. Uh, I'd like to introduce the two other folks in this fine recording today. Uh, first off, we've got Owen. Hello. And we've also got Felipe. Hi, how you doing? And of course, I am Zane Ross, uh, the best one of the bunch. Um, so today we're going to be talking about, um, just generally affordable housing. Um, we sort of feel like it's very pertinent in today's climate, um, and just in the world in general, especially regarding people, um, in our sort of positions as college students. Um, so I figure, why don't we just start off, I got a question for you guys. Um, I, I'm just wondering what you guys think of how universities, and in particular Portland State, because that's what we know, um, handles housing and making it affordable and available for its students. Oh, wow. I, I actually have quite a few comments on this one in particular. So I actually went to OSU for uh, two years before transferring up to Portland State. Uh, in case you don't know, OSU is Oregon State University uh, down in Corvallis. And my, my freshman year, I, I stayed in the dorms there. And it's actually expensive. Um, it's for, for what you get, which is a very tiny, maybe uh 200 square foot ish uh, room which you share with somebody else um shared bathrooms it's still you know like i think around 400 dollars a month or something like that if not more um well don't forget about the closet space that you have though Oh yeah, yeah no, that's a massive closet space. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's it's tiny. It's it's pretty awful. And I mean, the universities provide you know financial aid, uh, work studies for people who do need it. But for all the other students, you know, it, I wouldn't call it exactly affordable. Uh, it's I, I don't really have a lot of experience with you know Portland State housing. I just know that from my experience at OSU. It was, it could, they definitely could have done it a lot better considering that the one I was staying in was from, you know, the 1950s, Sackett Hall, it, or even older than that. It's, it's a really old building and yet it was still incredibly expensive. I will say also that, um, cause I, I visited you once while you were living there and I, I've been in a couple of the PSU dorm buildings before and in the rooms. And it seems like at OSU, the dorm rooms, at least the ones that I saw were smaller than PSUs, but they also seemed nicer in a way. Um, I'm thinking of in particular on Dean, um, which is one of the PSU dorm buildings. And Going in there, I'm not sure if there are better rooms or anything, if I was just in a particularly bad one, but it, they had a decent amount of space, but the way that the space was laid out, it didn't provide an economical um, 
system for actually being able to place things like furniture and keep in mind pathways. So even though you had more space than you had at your dorm building at OSU, you didn't really because you were forced to put things in particular locations that really constricted the space. Yeah. Oh, I did also just want to say very quickly is that keep in mind the the dorm that you saw at OSU for me was not, you know, the traditional dorm style. Um, this one had a sleeping porch. So, you know, as you walked in, there was two private closets. Each person got their own closet on either side of the door. Um, and then there was like the main area, which had two desks and like general living space. And then you had a sleeping porch, which had a bunk bed in it. So it was definitely a good use of the space, but it was very different than compared to the traditional dorm style. Um, the One of the other halls, Tebow Hall, that one was very much the traditional style, and it was even smaller than what my, the, my dorm was. Um, they had, like, you know, the two beds, and just the spacing of it felt so cramped, and it was just poorly done. Like, it might have been a larger room, but it just felt so much smaller just due to, you know, how much actual usable space in there there was that was taken up by those two beds. Um, and then also the only other kind of dorm room that I have experience with, or the only dorm room I have experience with at PSU was when you were staying at University Point. Yeah, that's, I mean, I wouldn't even consider that a dorm though. It's more of an apartment. It's not a good apartment, but, um, it's, I mean, it's it's a building that's tailored towards students, you know, um, but it's also an apartment building. Like, there's, there's other people that live there that aren't students, and it's set up in a way that has units sort of tailored towards normal, like, apartment life. Um, that being said, though, there are also a lot of that, like the one that I stayed in that you saw, Ellen, that um, were pretty much just a dorm room. If you guys a template, right? I mean, in terms of affordable housing and especially college housing, these things have to kind of be symmetrical and identical almost in every way because I guess they were looking at it from a financial standpoint, creating the same spaces, having a basic plan that a contractor could construct cheaply, quickly, um, and somewhat with uh, have some ability of quality uh, to it. Although from a student standpoint, that isn't really, uh, doesn't really stretch to meet our requirements in terms of quality, which is what you guys were pointing out. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, I almost wonder if like people that live, you know, outside of the dorms, whether it be in an apartment or with their parents or something like that, if in some way they do benefit more in terms of their learning. Um, but I mean, we talked about this last episode a bit, just um, how being in a good environment can help you learn um, and it can, it can benefit you just to be in a nice space. But I wonder if that, um, well, I guess I wonder if the dorms now, with them being more efficient and sort of easy to construct cheaply, um, if that cost savings 
to the student outweighs the benefits that they could potentially get from having a nice place to live. I think it would keep you on campus more often if you really had a nice living space and you kind of took ownership of that space. It would it would keep you on campus and keep you engaged more. I think that would be a, a direct kind of short putt for that. Yeah, in terms sure. of uh, PSU's building list, I mean, uh, when we look at PSU's website, currently they show nine residential uh, dormitories. Um, and when I started looking at the square footage, it, it, it got, it, it's a lot of square footage that PSU is, is in essence, being a landlord to. Uh, the net available space or signable space, space, areas where you can live and kind of occupy, goes up to 550 thousand square feet um, and they account for up to 1500 beds so psu is is a significant landlord especially in downtown portland mm -hmm. yeah um no it's very interesting and uh Talking about affordable housing right now more than ever is actually very apt uh i mean coronavirus is well it's affecting all of our lives and it is raising a lot of que uh, questions in our community, especially considering the economy, uh, <laughs> which frankly is not in a great state. Um, right now, we are in the middle of a recession. We're not quite in a depression yet. Depression is over the course of many years instead of, you know, a quarter or even uh, just like a couple of months, which this has been so far. Um, but also something to consider just for everybody out there. Stock market is a terrible, terrible, terrible indicator of how our economy is doing. The main thing to look at is consumer spending within the economy. Uh, the stock market is just a representation of uh, investors' confidence within certain companies for them to generate revenue. And yes, that can show, you know, it may be doing, some companies may be doing better than others, but there's always other aspects of it that just aren't a very good indicator. I'm wondering, um, sorry to interrupt. I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. um, and I figured you'd be a person to ask, how do you, like, how drastically do you think the housing market is going to decline? Like, you, how big of an impact do you think it'll take? Oh, boy. Um, that's really hard to tell. Uh, I'm, yeah. I suspect it's going to take a decent hit. And my reasoning for this is people just aren't able to uh, purchase, uh, you know, land. And this has been an issue facing, you know, millennials for a long time. They just haven't been able to buy houses and buy new real estate. Um, and now more than ever, people, I think the U.S. job count or people out of work is, what, 16 million now? Um it's grown so much uh, these past couple of weeks or even days. It's been absolutely wild. Um, oh. It's at least 10 million. It's absolutely wild. And there's, what, 6.6 .6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week. Which, yeah. there's a good chunk of them which will be able to, you know, get their, um, uh, you know, everything back by when all this is over they'll get their jobs back 
Um, but then there's also a huge chunk which won't, just from businesses that weren't able to be sustained and continue on. Uh, and so all of those people who are out of jobs aren't, aren't going to be able to save money, which won't they won't be able to, e- let alone buying a house, even make rent payments. So all of that is actually going to drive up a need for low-income housing. And kind yep. of where I'm going with all of this, and my question to you two, who are architecture majors, is what is kind of the architect's role in low-income housing and, like, designing it and, I guess, just going about it? I mean, from my point of view, at least, it seems like the architect doesn't have as much of a role in creating low-income housing. Like, obviously, they will design it and stuff like that, but it's not the demand of the architect to make low-income housing. It's the demand of the client um so it's hard hard to say like oh you know this this person um makes a bunch of low-income housing even if they do and they might be good at it it's it's not because that architect is necessarily going out and building low-income housing it's because there are clients that have seen this architect make good low-income housing and decided that it was good um i know there are some exceptions to that though i know i think felipe you know more about this there's a firm um that has been developing low-income housing um structures that are actually a lot more pleasant than the ones that i've seen i yeah i'd agree that the intention of the architect the the intention of the building is really representative of the client or the municipality even from an architect standpoint, we don't get to pick the site. We're given a site and given a direction to accomplish a couple of goals. Um, while an architect is always trying to create the best space possible in terms of incoming light, accessibility, uh, pathways is what uh, Dane alluded to earlier. Um, our focus isn't singular that way towards low-income housing. And even then, we we use sustainable or low-cost materials that really isn't transposed onto the end user that way. Um, and to your point, Dan, I know there are a lot of firms that are really getting into sustainability, creating modular spaces. I, I think you're referring to one up in Seattle. Uh, there's a architect up in Seattle who creates modular housing uh, with the purpose of expansion. So kind of that millennial aspect of it is you're kind of building out your house and your property as you kind of get the feel for your finances and as you get the feel for what really suits your needs in that situation. Mm -hmm. I feel like... um... Sort of, sort of as you were saying, um, the architect doesn't really, like, obviously we don't get to choose to do that, but I feel like in architecture, it's so limited when you are working with something that's meant to be as cheap as possible. Um, and I that's obviously um, <laughs> most people's desire is to get what they want as cheaply as possible. But... Um, 
for something like low-income housing in particular, there's obviously a very strict budget for it. And I feel like it can be hard for architects and architecture firms to break away from just considering that financial aspect of it and actually try and develop something that's going to have an actual intrigue to it. Um, you know, because I, I just see all of these like cheaper high rise projects that go in and it seems like, okay, you've got like a decent looking facade or something like that, but that's not, that's not really architecture, you know, that's not proper design. That's just trying to make something that looks cool-ish for as little amount of money as possible. Yeah, and a planning and policy issue at that point, right? I mean, even if you're given the best piece of land and have the best intentions, it, it may be super difficult to build something uh, according to the uh, rules and regulations of that kind of zone. Uh, I think that's a, that's a huge issue in urban planning and uh, urbanists in general is, is how to maneuver around all of these codes and regulations and, and requirements to have so much light in each room and so much space per square foot for each occupant, uh, that, that could be, and that primarily is one of the cost drivers to make construction more costly in, in the end. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's about time for us to take a little break here, but right after that break, we'll be back with some, some more in-depth conversation. So stick around. Alrighty, so we're on our break, and I just wanted to do some quick announcements. So, as before, I'm Owen Dimitri. I'm also the media editor for PSU Vanguard, and thank you guys so much for listening so far. So, as many of you know, there is a bit of a worldwide event happening right now, but we are still able to bring you the same content as before, and actually even a little bit more. In case you don't know, at the Vanguard, we have a couple of other podcasts one of them, Situational Significance, which has been running since October and is currently hosted by the wonderful Nick Townsend, who is our arts and culture editor. I am also going to be starting a psychology and well-being podcast called Your Own Mind, which will be coming soon, so please keep an eye out for it. In addition, this show will be continuing to run every two weeks, and we'll probably be doing blog posts uh, on psuvanguard.com underneath the episode, and we'll have a little bit of ex extra information for you guys to check out. Uh, otherwise, just wanted to bring you that. Check out our other podcasts. Stay safe, everyone, and hope you enjoy listening to the rest of this episode. Alrighty, guys. As we sort of move into our second half here, I want to kind of I want to talk about how I guess effective affordable housing is, um, and. It, that can mean a number of different things. I guess what I what I'm mostly trying to get at is how how dense it can be and how dense it should be. Because there are benefits to both, um, but I, I kind of want to hear what you guys think is really the best sort of approach on those terms. I think it could be crazy dense. <laughs> it could it yeah. could be. Uh it could reach the end of each person's imagination. Should it be super dense? Uh, in my opinion, it shouldn't. Yeah. A person's ability to have free space, have mobility uh, without really being on top of each other uh, is, is needed. Um, I know New York and Tokyo and these kind of very large cities that are super dense, they find ways to make it work and, and 
it really find ways to thrive as well. Um, I, I think the urban dense approach um, impacts our affordability though, for sure. Uh, the taller a building gets, the, the more structural components it has, the more engineering time you put into it, the, the more it's going to cost to live in that space, the more it's going to cost to renovate that space and kind of revitalize certain aspects of that building. But I agree that it, there is an equilibrium somewhere. And in each city, it's kind of subjective based on that society. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it, just to sort of play devil's advocate here, um, those cities like Tokyo and New York, um, I mean, New York in particular, it's technically the greenest city in America. And the reason for that is because it's so dense. Um, because there are more people packed into a smaller footprint, it doesn't uh, impact the amount of land that we take up and that we potentially, I don't want to say destroy, but make ungreen, I guess. Um, so it is sort of hard to live in a dense environment like that, just because, like you were saying, you don't have as much space, you don't have as much freedom necessarily. But at the same time, I feel like there should be a way to be able to balance having a lot of people in a smaller footprint while still giving people the space that they need. Yeah, I just wanted to actually say something to New York's, well, greenness and the fact as well that they probably don't have as many cars driving around as like, you know, L.A. or Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, because they're all in such a dense area, they can easily walk or take uh, public transportation. Something I did actually want to bring up here is Hong Kong and actually micro housing. I find this very interesting. And Hong Kong in particular has a really big issue where it's like it's so many people packed into such a small area that, you know, low income housing is now multiple people and like a normal apartment size, like maybe six families in that area. And the amount of living space each person has is basically a coffin. It, it's absolutely horrific, those living conditions. And I've noticed some of that has started to creep into very expensive housing markets like Portland and Seattle. I mean, not to that degree, but uh, there's this one um, real estate company. I'm, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but uh, they are creating these micro apartments where it's just, you know, like 300 square feet. Um, and it's it's just these really small areas that people have to live in and it's it's much cheaper than the alternatives i mean the average studio in portland is around you know $1100 per month to rent these ones are about 850 or so on the lower end which i mean in comparison is actually quite a lot better per month uh but also you're living with a lot less space you don't have an actual kitchen shared kitchens it's pretty much just a dorm. Yeah, I mean, that. there's a lot of different aspects to that that, you know, are good and bad. And obviously we live in a capitalist society. I don't want to get too political, but a lot of 
what the driving factor in your day-to-day life is, is how much you can spend. Um, and so just having that extra money um, that you don't have to put towards living can be incredibly beneficial to yourself, you know, for better or worse. Um, but it's, I mean, this is all very metabolistic in a way. Um, and for those that don't know what I exactly mean by that, um, and I don't know that I 100% know, to be honest. Um, it's, hey Zane. Yeah. Could I just correct my previous statement? Um, so <laughs> the, the apartments, not 300 square feet, that is entirely wrong. It is 162 to 170 square feet which is significantly less than what I said. Um, In addition, the place I was thinking of is called Footprint Hollywood um, in Portland. Uh, And for a studio apartment, a basement studio, keep in mind, for 162 square feet, $820 a month. Just wanted to throw that out there, correct my statement because I was wrong. Um, That's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I feel like that's that's pretty bad. Like... even though it, that is cheaper than your average apartment, which I would say is even like average more than 1100 but still, I feel like that's that's still not great for a, like 150 square feet for that much money. That seems that seems no. all over the top. Mm-hmm. Especially since it's in a basement as well. Yeah. Huh. I don't think that's for everybody. <laughs> each, I think that situation is a little unique to each person, right? Uh, we all kind of have different tastes and different requirements because I think in that aspect, urban planners are creating a type of ecosystem. Once you get down to 100 to 200 square foot, you're creating a micro ecosystem because you're trying to use the land space most efficiently or you're trying to create some type of community that is beneficial to its its occupants. Maybe those occupants don't need that extra space. Maybe they work at night and sleep during the day. Uh, there's a lot of different type of economical reasons why someone would choose that small of residence. Um, but I find that really interesting because I was also looking into a parasite architecture. I don't know if you've seen that, Zane. It's where yeah. Uh, you create architecture on the side of an existing larger structure. And they also did that in New York where uh, on the side of an unused warehouse, they created a scaffolding and created one bedroom homes, one bedroom kind of like cottages for the homeless. So that way every night in New York, homeless have the opportunity to go to this parasitic architecture, have a place to stay out of the out of the environment and still kind of develop themselves to find a job or continue to have that motivation to work every day uh, because they're being treated as a human. They're being treated as an equal, having a space to call their own every night. Yeah, no, for sure. That's great. I I did not know about that specific one, but um, I think that sort of also is similar to what I was talking about with metabolism, um, which, as I was going to say before, metabolism is um, an architectural style that came about in post-war Japan. Um, and it's it's essentially these, like, mega structures, I guess you could say, 
that have um, these repeating units essentially that um, that are uh, uh, stacked on top of each other usually so it looks like essentially little uh, pods that are all grouped together but it, it's in almost a like biological way um, and I feel like that's one way that you can sort of get that architectural intrigue into something like you were saying with that 150 foot square foot 150 square foot oof, um, floor plate is something like that where it clearly is intentional in a stylistic sense apart from just being cheap you know because when i when i think about what you were talking about owen with that tiny apartment that's still that expensive it seems like it's very much just for maximum profits you know um disregarding how many windows there are obviously it's in a basement that can't be nice but with something like metabolism you get the opportunity to have those smaller units that can be good for people that need that while still keeping it interesting yeah and actually that's one of the things i love about modern architecture is the use of you know windows and light to make you know a small space feel even larger than it actually is and i think that's something that's also very good for potentially our mental health because you know being in confined spaces is not conducive to that and i think that's a issue that a lot of people are having right now is that we're you know stuck indoors and especially people in apartments or in very densely populated cities who can't go out it's providing a real issue um but you know if you have a space with a lot of bright windows and like it's not sectioned off into smaller enclosed spaces i think that's a lot better i i'm a big personally i'm a big fan of like open floor plans and large windows that provide a lot of light because it does provide a more airiness and more openness to the space you're inhabiting. I think this is one thing that will probably get mentioned every single episode, but natural light is like half of a design project. Um, just maximizing how much natural light you can get into a space is always key, or at least um, thinking about it and manipulating it in some way is always a very good point of interest with uh, good architectural design. That is to say, though, I don't think that just natural light or open floor space is the only thing that can make a space feel big. Um, though a lot of people do sort of think in that way. I don't mean that sounded kind of <laughs> snide saying it like that, because that's what you just said, Alec. But um, but that's not the only thing that you can do. And I think a lot of architects don't really consider all the different possibilities as to what you could make a space. I guess to rephrase that is an architect should use its natural resources to the best of their capacity, whether that's light or rain or forest, whatever that case is, an architect should be able to use their resources and expand upon them and kind of amplify them so that way the person living in that space could appreciate that light or that rain or that view whatever whatever the focal point is um, i really liked the uh, sustain lane a website 
um, a couple years back did a, a ranking of greenest U.S. cities, and in, in their ranking, they gave Portland, Portland, Oregon, was ranked 31st among housing affordability. And so in the times where people are forced to stay at home, their focus is now back on their home, their affordability, their bills, um, relative to the other kind of aspects of Portland itself. Uh, we got second in air quality. We got second in water quality. Uh, we got first in city in innovation. And so when you're in a city that is primarily outdoor driven, where you're able to go hiking, when you're able to commute easily, your focus is not on your house per se. It's on kind of your, your vast environment, the ecosystem that you're living within. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with you that architecture is very much a sort of byproduct of its surroundings and its environment. And I feel like it can be hard a lot of times in something like a dense city to create architecture that does respond to that very well without creating something that, I don't know, it, it, there, there aren't a lot of unique features to a city is what I'm trying to say, that you can really focus on an architecture in the same way that you could, like, you know, a forest or a great view over a nice field or something like that, you know? Um, yeah, and I, I think in environment, it's, it's unified, right? I think that's what you get at. You know, yeah. of architecture is very hard. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I feel like some architectural styles like metabolism and things like that can really come into play because they do highlight that aspect to a city well. Um, and it, it makes you sort of think about where you are, you know, and I feel like in a way they sort of challenge the epistemology of being in a city and how you, I guess, how you understand living in a city. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Your your ability to respirate, uh, your ability to grow and prosper in in that city is, I think, is fundamental to your success. If you're restricted in space, if you're restricted in growth, whatever that constraint is, it becomes apparent um, as you start to evolve in that city and start to explore. You start to notice why is your space different than the spaces you love to visit all the time. Uh, and I think it's just that policy planning, that, that cost of living in those types of areas that makes it really hard to attain those types of environments for yourself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it seems like there are a lot of buildings that get sort of trashed on a lot of times. And I know I'm I'm guilty of this too, but in the cityscape, um, that are just, like I said, those sort of boring high-rise buildings that you pass on the street and you're like, what? Like, what's the point of that? That does not look great. It looks cheap. It looks bad, you know? Um, but I feel like it is sort of hard, again, to play the devil's advocate, to actually make something like that that is cheap and is, you know, playing to all these different restrictions and is in this sort of bland environment from the outside at least 
and you know make something that's interesting and make something that plays off the environment that it's in and make something that actually gives a good feel yeah i totally agree with you i mean trying to hit every every criteria of a building um or the criteria of society in one building is extremely hard there is umpteenth number of criteria that everybody wants they they want an open floor plan, but then they want high ceilings, but then they want cost of construction to remain low. Uh, you have all of these bullet points you're always trying to hit, and it, and it just becomes impossible at a certain point. And, uh, as an architect, you have to identify what those, what the primary characteristics are to make your building unique, to make it usable, and to make it memorable for the community. Uh, at that given time, as well as to age well, I think that's what architecture is is aimed at. Is uh, mostly is is an ability for that building to age throughout time and still be usable, still be able to have a flexibility in its interior spaces to meet different needs as society changes. Yeah, for sure. But I, yeah, I do feel like. That's one of those aspects and one of those things that doesn't happen very often because it's it's sort of the battle of choosing what to implement. You know, it's like you have these five different things that you want to implement and you want to have all of them, you know, that would be ideal. And that's what you see all these great buildings going up are is have all those five things but your client can only really account for three of those things. So you got to pick, okay, do I sacrifice some of the budget to go towards something that's going to actually be intriguing or make this building a little more exciting? Or do I use that budget to further maximize the efficiency of this building? And a lot of times that you'll go to your client and say, okay, like I, we have these options. This one is going to be a, like a lot nicer. It's going to be a lot better, but you might have to spend a little more. Whereas in this one, you know, it will come at budget, which never happens, but you know, we'll come at budget and you'll have a decent product. And I swear most of the time, pretty much all the time, it's the cheap one because that's what, that's what people want, especially in those positions is whatever is cheapest and is going to profit them the most. Yeah, I completely agree with you on, on that point. Creating some type of value significance to the stakeholders and to the person that's going to be living there, putting, applying a worth to that community space relative to its environment, I think that's the ultimate goal. And, and that's what the architect kind of takes you 80% of there, right? Uh, what did Frank Lord Wright say? He's not building you a home, he's building you a house. The person who moves in makes it a home by kind of altering it to their personality, uh, by creating a ecosystem that is specific for them, um, because that's really what we rely on is getting you to a point where that an occupant could now see the same vision you're seeing and could continue that strand uh, into the future at least. Yeah, I think that's some that's a really good point. Um, but unfortunately, I think that 
about makes our makes our time point there. So um, yeah, it was it was good talking with you guys. So I I thought this was a great conversation. There were a lot of a lot of interesting points that I'm definitely gonna think about way too late. Um, it's gonna keep me up at night. Dang it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah on, on that note. Yeah, on that note, um, yeah, I'll just thank you guys for coming. If you wanna, yeah, if you guys have any any wrap up thoughts or anything. Um, no, yeah. I enjoyed our time. No, uh, sorry, Felipe. Yeah, no, I enjoyed our time as well. Um, thank you all for listening. Be sure to check out our other podcasts, Situational Significance and Your Own Mind. Um, we'll be having new episodes of each of those coming out soon. Otherwise, I hope you stay safe with everything that's going on and hope you learned something today. Just one last time, I'm Zane Roth. Felipe Flores. And I'm Owen Dimitri. Goodbye.